Well, thank you all for joining us on uh, this presentation. It's going to cover surgical side infection reduction with a special emphasis on strategies during spine surgery. And we're going to talk about uh, several perioperative considerations regarding the issues of surgical site infection and ways to prevent it. There are going to be two of us presenting to you today. Um, the first is going to be uh, Kyle Muller. He is a neurosurgeon at Brown University out in Providence, Rhode Island. And I am a David Shapiro. I'm an anesthesiologist way down south of Rhode Island in Florida at Red Hill Surgical Center in Tallahassee. So I will be starting out the presentation and then we'll turn it over about halfway through to Dr. Muller and he will finish up talking mainly about the uh, spine aspects of the program. It's just some faculty disclosures for your edification. And we also wanted to let you know that this program is being provided by the North American Center for Continuing Medical Education, which is an HMP global company. And it is further supported by an educational grant from 3M Healthcare, the Medical Solutions Division. As you can see, we have a lot to cover today. Um, the learning objectives that you can see are really going to be divided up between the two speakers that I've just introduced. We're gonna talk a little bit, especially in the beginning about the clinical and economic uh, ramifications of hypothermia and how it relates to surgical side infections. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, intraoperative as well as basically perioperative management to reduce the risks of SSIs, which is what we all want to do. And then we'll talk about a little bit about pre-warming before we turn it over to Dr. Mueller, who will be talking specifically about some techniques involving um, spine surgery, as he can do that so well from his perspective as a neurosurgeon. So I'm gonna start out my presentation or my portion of this presentation with a, just a general definition of surgical site infections. And then we're gonna get into some specifics about how they're further divided, both in the literature and also at the federal government reporting level where a lot of these statistics are accumulated. So basically a surgical site infection is uh, not surprisingly an infection that occurs after surgery in the part of the body where the surgery took place. So obviously this is something that we don't want to happen that is clearly in most instances related to the surgical procedure that the patient underwent prior to the infection. The further definition does add a little bit of time and they're defined as occurring within 30 days. And that's in the case of a surgery that does not uh, utilize an implant or implantation. If there is an implant that has been put in or placed during the surgical procedure, then that time frame is extended out to one year after the procedure uh, for the infection to be considered a surgical site infection. As I mentioned, there are several different types of surgical site infection as defined by the CDC, and that's of course Centers for Disease Control and Prevention uh, way up there in Atlanta. And we're gonna talk about those classifications. Basically, there are three main ones. The two at 30,000 feet, if you will, are either um, excisional or organ space with incisional um, SSIs being further subclassified into superficial, that's involving only the skin and subcute tissue, or deep. And I'm going to explain that a little bit further 
right now so you can get a closer look at what constitutes the requirements to be defined as one of those three different kinds of SSIs. So again, um, infections, um, the superficial incisional in, uh, SSI or surgical side infection, again, occurs within 30 days, but uh, involves only the skin or subcutaneous tissue um, at the incision site. That's the sort of overriding definition. And then you almost get a choice, if you will, to account for the uh, very nature of these infections. Um, it has to have at least one of the following four criteria that you see before you. It certainly could have more than one, and these often do. But what we're looking for is evidence of that purulent purulent drainage um, with or without the lab confirmation um, or organisms that are isolated from an aseptically obtained culture. So again, if you're investigating whether an infection after a procedure is going to be classified, one of the things you want to do is culture it. And then one of the following signs or symptoms um, is one of the other criteria that the infection may have. So either pain or tenderness, non-uncommon localized swelling, redness. Uh, sometimes these are warm to the touch. So um, these are some of the hallmarks of these superficial incisions. And then the fourth one is finally sort of a catch-all, which is a diagnosis of the superficial incisional SSI by the surgeon or attending physician. And I'm going to flip real quickly to the second half of that, or the uh, flip side, if you will. That's going to be the deep incisional um, surgical side infection. And again, we're going to use the 30 days um, after the procedure, again, if that, there's no implant. And the same deal goes if there is an implant that's extended out to a year. And then these are, these are similar, but um, you want to look for either evidence of that drainage, as we talked about before, or um, a deep incision which has spontaneously dehissed or essentially come apart, or in some instances, especially for therapeutic intervention, is deliberately opened by the surgeon um, when the patient has either high fever, uh, localized pain, tenderness, um, unless that site is culture negative again. And then another criteria that could be one of the possible qualifiers is an abscess or other evidence of infection involving the deep incision. Um, that would be something that the uh, surgeon would find on examination or during reoperation. And again, number four, it, just like it was previously, is sort of a catch-all diagnosis. That would be a diagnosis of a deep incisional surgical side infection by the surgeon. And then moving back on to the other type of, uh, of the three is that organ space or SSI. So those again have the same time frame. I won't go through those again, but what you're looking for as again, it is one of the following four criteria. And again, these are gonna to start to sound a little bit familiar. So that purulent drainage, um, again, isolated um, organisms uh, from a culture that might've been done, an abscess or other infection, and then a diagnosis in this case, though, it's going to be of an organ space surgical side infection by the surgeon. So as you can see, those three definitions are three different kinds of surgical side infections pretty much cover the waterfront in terms of being able to assign a little bit more meaning behind the term if someone receives a diagnosis of having a surgical side infection and allows us to proceed with whatever the the appropriate kind of therapy would be up until including, uh, including um, another surgery if that seems to be indicated.
So how did these occur? Of course, that should be the next question on your mind, because what we're looking at again during this whole presentation is preventing them. So they can be caused by a lot of different things, either something from within or from without the, the body. So either endogenous or exogenous microorganisms, some of those uh, latter being from the environment. Most are caused by the endogenous um, organisms that are present on the skin. So that is the kind of culprit um, in most surgical side infections. In that case, it's usually that gram-positive bacteria, such as Staph aureus. That's really the most common because that kind of lives on all of our skin um, all of the time. So not surprisingly, that is one of the uh, most cited culprits to be the cause or etiology of SSIs. Of course, infections can also be caused by organisms that occur within the patient's body that may be exposed or contaminate the surgical site. And these will of course depend on the surgical site. Um, so for example, the risk of developing a surgical site infection from enteric gram-negative microorganisms would obviously be suspect and very likely to occur if the surgery was done on the GI tract since those, that is where those organisms uh, most commonly live. Um, exogenous or sources from the outside can be um, surgical instruments, so instruments that were not cleaned properly, uh, properly maybe not sterilized uh, properly, um, possibly operating room surfaces if those had unintentionally, uh, in most cases, come in contact with the wound, or it could even be things that are circulating in the air or possibly have um, contaminated the site from being carried by personnel that are in the operating room, especially those that are near the surgical site during the procedure. Unfortunately, the incidence is pretty darn high. So that's one of the reasons why we want to share this information with you today. Uh, there's a lot of literature, of course, on the subject. That's what I'm hoping to summarize for you as we go through this material. Um, but some of the, um, a lot of the studies cite uh, numbers about as high as 27 million surgical procedures. And of those, about 5% resulting in surgical site infection. So that's well over a million uh, surgical site infections uh, per year. So that, that is one is too many, but certainly a million, a million 350,000 are way, way, way above what we would like to see for our patients. So one of the uh, best repositories of this information, as I said before, it is monitored at the federal level by the CDC. And that program is uh, up on the screen for you. That's the NNIS or National Nosocomial Infection Surveillance System. And, and again, that is managed by the uh, Centers for Disease Control. So um, according to their data, actually, SSIs are the third most frequently reported uh, nosocomial infection and are associated with substantial morbidity. And that, that's one of the reasons, again, why we want to share this information because we're really aiming towards prevention. So I want to talk a little bit further uh, about those about the implications of an SSI. One that I don't want to spend too much time from, you can uh, read this slide yourself, but there's some big numbers behind this. Um, if you're a clinician um, and you have treated SSIs or encountered them in some form of your practice, you'll know that they are absolutely a horrendous thing, not only to treat, but a very, very trying uh, episode of a patient's care and one that's certainly unwanted. They add up to a lot of days, um, extra in the hospital, uh, which no one wants, clearly. And as you can see, some real big numbers in terms of what it costs the healthcare system to take
take care of these people. So um, up into the billions of dollars by many, many estimates. Um, there are a lot of things that can be done to address SSIs, but again, because they're so complex and some of them are so profound and some of those patients get so sick that they really do um, incur a lot of harm to patients that we're really hoping to prevent as clinicians uh, working in the procedural environment. Um, as I said, um, they not only do they cause significant morbidity and mortality, but um, those patients are really, really uh, likely to have a long time in the hospital, often with intensive care treatment, and very unfortunately, very, very likely to expire as a result of this SSI. So I'm not gonna talk about all the different permutations or the different clinical scenarios. What we really wanna talk about again today is prevention, but um, just so you know, that we are aware that there are many different kinds of SSIs as we've talked about the classification, but um, there are as, as many different kinds of SSIs as our procedures, types of patients, and unfortunately uh, depend a lot on the, uh, some of the underlying factors of the patients, which I wanna talk about a little bit um, coming up in this presentation. So as I mentioned, those risk factors, um, uh, influence very, very uh, strongly whether a patient is susceptible to and therefore prone to getting an SSI. So we want to look at a real lot of things. Uh, one of them is the ASA classification. As I mentioned before, I'm an anesthesiologist, so something near and dear to my heart. But as you probably know, the ASA classification is really just a subjective assessment, usually assigned by an anesthesia professional on the general overall clinical condition um, and the wound class, which presents to the uh, anesthesia staff prior to the surgical uh, intervention. So we want to be looking at the possibility of an already contaminated wound. So one of the things we want to look at is that wound clean, is it contaminated, is it dirty, is it already infected? Um, we also want to look at some very, very, very specific things regarding the um, duration of surgery, which also has a high correlation as the surgery goes on for a longer period of time with the incidence of SSIs. But some of those other things that we want to look at that um, wrap into both the duration and also the ASA classification are really specific comorbidities of a patient. So we want to look at things like, do they have pre-existing um, chronic diseases, especially things that would impair their vasculature and their ability to oxygenate and provide um, basically a safe surgical site for the healing portion of their uh, of their care. We want to look at their age, of course, um, very young or very old are much more prone to these types of infections. And then all the things that you would expect to go along with uh, comorbidities and a high incidence of perioperative issues. So um, are they overweight? Do they have a high BMI? Do they have a history of smoking or even perhaps alcohol abuse? Um, what is their general nutritional status? Obviously, all of these are general, general things that combine not only to determine 
determine what the entire patient looks like, but also what their predisposition is going to be to uh, sustain an SSI after their surgery has been completed. So you always want to be aware of what the patient is like coming into the procedure, especially as, as we start moving to the portion of the presentation dealing with prevention. So one of the things about the, um, the procedure that we want to look at, um, in addition to the patient, we want to look at things, and we're going to talk specifically about some things that we can do to um, affect or, or minimize the incidence of SSI. So we want to look at things like antimicrobial prophylaxis. Are we giving antibiotics? We want to look at the way we prepare the site for surgery. Things like hair removal, uh, not shaving the, the site. We want to take care of the skin and get that as clean as possible. So our antiseptic protocol is um, very, very important in this entire spectrum of things that we can do. But we also want to look at other things in terms of the environment of care. So want to make sure that everyone in the room is is attired properly, we want to make sure that the ventilation is appropriate for the procedure. And we want to make sure, as I mentioned before, that all of the instruments are as clean as can possibly be. So we need to be really diligent about the way that we do the sterile processing and the way that we perform our sterile techniques and surgical techniques during the surgery. So really what I'm getting at is um, this SSI prophylaxis really, really involves the entire surgical team. It's not just the surgeon. It really includes people, some of whom the patient won't even see during their stay in, in, a, in a procedural uh, capacity. So folks like in the surgical in sterile processing that are working on to make sure that the equipment is as clean as possible, go a long way towards minimizing the possibility of a patient under, uh, undergoing or sustaining an SSI after their surgery. So all of these things need to be uh, really, really strictly emphasized in the perioperative environment. But let's talk about some specific things that we can do to um, really make sure that we're adhering to that aseptic technique. So again, we wanna control all those envir environmental factors in the operating room, but things like temperature, humidity, I already mentioned airflow exchange, all are important because all can be a setup for increased incidence of SSI. We wanna be really careful about very scrupulous um, implementation of preoperative protocols in, and some of the things I already talked about, but really make sure that we've done everything with that patient and in fact included the patient, um, especially if there's things that the patient could do in terms of uh, even before they come to the facility in terms of uh, cleaning, their, cleaning the, their skin, scrubbing possibly. A lot of times these patients are given uh, material that they can really start to clean the area that will be the surgical site even before we start working on them when they come to our organization. So preoperative uh, showering and all of the other things that can be done at home. While they're with us in the, in the interim and post-operative period, we really wanna be, again, very careful about all those perioperative techniques, but we wanna keep a close and some of those things that we know to be risk factors. So again, if they're a diabetic, um, we want to be doing clo a really close job of monitoring their glucose levels and making sure that they have really good oxygenation throughout the entire procedure. 
One of the other things that we're going to focus on right now is really that um, prevention of intraoperative hypothermia, because it's one of the most overlooked aspects of the things that we have in our armamentarium to really reduce the incidence of SSIs. So let's just take a little bit of a deep dive into that uh, perioperative temperature management. I want to set forth some terms for you just to uh, let you know what we'll be referring to. What we really want to be aiming for is keeping that patient we call normal thermic or keeping their, their uh, core temperature between 36 and 37.5 degrees. And we want to keep them away from being hypothermic, which is defined as getting that core body temperature below 36. And what we want to do is uh, make sure that happens to the patient and do everything that we can to prevent that, that inadvertent and hypothermia that unfortunately occurs so frequently in the surgical setting. Really, some uh, studies show up to 90% of patients, unless they are treated with some of the things I'm going to mention in a minute, um, are uh, hypothermic either peri uh, in the perioperative period, sometimes beginning even before they come to the operating or procedure room, and certainly occurring uh, throughout the uh, intraoperative and postoperative period. So 90% is pretty high, and we want to reduce that to as close to zero as we can get. Some of the things that we talk about again are are those are those core temperatures because um, as we as I have mentioned, this um, prophylactic measure of making sure that the patient is kept as warm of, as possible will really do. Uh, everything that we can to keep that core temperature up. What we know is that that core temperature can drop over one and a half degrees centigrade really quickly, especially during that first hour of general anesthesia. So even though, as I mentioned, I'm an anesthesiologist, um, uh, it is in some regards um, up to us to prevent that from happening. We as anesthesiologists are aware that the anesthetic medications we give cause vasodilation, which allows that warm blood from the internal organs or from your core to flow freely and then mix with that colder blood in the periphery of the patient. So their skin, especially at their extremities. So 80% of the of the temperature decrease is unfortunately related to this um, redistribution of that cold blood from the periphery into the core. And that's what starts to get us into this trouble with what's known as a redistribution temperature drop. But that's just a fancy way of saying that the core temperature has dropped below where we want it to be in that real narrow range and has allowed the patient to become hypothermic. So you may ask, what, what does that do or why does that matter? Um, unfortunately, it does matter quite significantly. Um, what you see on the slide before you um, is um, are some of the major, major and very serious sequelae of hypothermia. So call them the seven deadly sins. There are certainly some other things that um, are a result of hypothermia, but all of these things are things that we want to pre uh, prevent. So um, we're, we've talked mainly about uh, wound infection or SSIs, but hypothermia can lead to a lot of other things. Just briefly, um, again, um, issues with blood clotting, 
Um, it can prolong the effect of drugs, especially those anesthesia drugs that we want to uh, dissipate very quickly towards the end of surgery and in the postoperative period. Unfortunately, it can have some cardiac uh, sequelae and lead to myocardial uh, infarction or ischemia. Obviously, um, this delayed emergence from anesthesia is something we don't want, but um, one of the things that patients complain about most is the fact that they're very uncomfortable in the postoperative period because their teeth are chattering, they're shivering, all normal responses to hypothermia, but um, things that we want to be able to prevent. And then and finally, and unfortunately, it does uh, result in increased mortality rates in the postoperative period. So for all these reasons, but especially that first one on the screen, uh, we really want to be careful about keeping the patient within that narrow, normal thermal range, which as you can see again on this slide, is that narrow range between 36 and 37.5 degrees. Um, as I mentioned, this is something that occurs in almost every patient. It's highly predictable, and it really is a result of all of the things that we do to the patient uh, and on behalf of the patient while they're with us undergoing a surgical procedure. But one of the things that has the most profound effect, as I mentioned before, are the pharmacologic substances or drugs that we give as anesthesiologists, um, really because um, they do uh, increase that peripheral vasodilation and allow this temperature redistribution uh, to occur. And that does occur during both general and also regional anesthesia. So, you know, please be aware that no, almost no matter what kind of anesthetic we're administering to the patient, this is something that we want to be sure to try as hard as we can to prevent. As I mentioned, some of the risk factors for SSI are some are the same as uh, overlapping with those for uh, perioperative hypothyroidism. So again, both uh, extremes of very young and very old patients. Again, that the, uh, the length of time of their procedure. One of the things that we also do to them uh, without almost thinking is give a lot of fluids. And those fluids, unless we've uh, taken the steps to warn them, are generally cold. Um, as far as the kinds of surgery, abdominal surgery, or anytime you've opened up the abdominal cavity and or introduced uh, medications or fluid into that space, you have gone a significant distance to increasing that hypothermia. So you need to be really, really careful about everything that we do, all the way from those uh, cold uh, skin preps to the temperature in the operating room, which those of us that, that kind of spend our professional lives in the operating room know they're pretty darn cold. We get to wear scrub suits, possibly jackets, uh, hats, maybe gloves, um, and the patients are there with very little on, um, you know, possibly one of those horribly thin gowns that we give them or possibly even nothing under their drapes. And so they are really, really prone to getting cold in our cold operating theaters really, really quickly. So again, some of the recommendations of, for children, you need to be really careful, uh, especially because their body uh, surface area to mass ratio, that, that obviously makes intuitive sense. But some of the things um, are pre-warming and warming those fluids. As I mentioned, especially when you're given over a liter of fluid, you really wanna make sure that you are not pouring in high volumes of really cold fluid into the directly into the bloodstream, which then goes about to even further reduce the temperature of that blood circulating in the core and in the periphery. 
So one of the best things that we can do, as you can see on the bottom of the slide, is provide that forced air warming. It really is one of the best techniques that we have to assure us that the patient can stay uh, normal thermic during the entire perioperative period. So this goes for children and, as you can see on this slide, adults. Um, you really want to make sure that the um, all of the perioperative phases, so uh, pre, intra, and post, um, are really, really diligently arranged so that the patient can remain as warm as possible, which is one of the reasons why what we'll be recommending is that this uh, preoperative warming start even before the patient goes to the operating room with you. So let's talk about some of those things that we can do preoperatively. And again, um, since almost all the anesthetic medications have the uh, deleterious effects that I mentioned, we really do suggest that all patients scheduled for any kind of anesthesia should be pre-warmed again, um, uh, hopefully with a forced air warming device for at least 10 minutes before you start. And then the other aspect of this that I haven't mentioned too much is that continuous core temperature monitoring. That of course in and of itself doesn't keep the patient warm, but allows us to know how the patient is doing. So just to give a little more color behind that, the best way of course to, uh, to know what the core temperature is, is to monitor as close as we can directly. So something like um, pulmonary artery would be a real gold standard, but that, that's pretty darn invasive. So we've got things like uh, distal esophageal um, temperature probes, um, nasopharyngeal probes, even tympanic membrane probes. Uh, probes give a good indication of core temperature. A little bit less so, but also an important um, aspect of the possibilities for us monitoring their temperature are, are things like oral or axillary or even, again, a little more invasive uh, bladder temperature. Or those are Although those are all less accurate, you can get a good estimation of the core temperature. Usually those, those uh, more peripheral temperatures do run about two degrees colder than the core. So you wanna add that back in as you are assessing their temperature if you're using a more peripheral probe, especially if you're doing something on the periphery like a forehead or even an extremity uh, probe. So, so again, why are we doing this? Why are we pre-warming them? Why are we keeping such close track of their, of their temperature? We really want to elevate um, that mean body temperature so that that core temperature can stay as warm as possible. Um, this really, again, can be achieved by a lot of things. What some of us have been doing for years is a lot less effective, which is using um, warm blankets. Those get cold really fast and certainly do not have the impact to maintain that core temperature of the patient as would forced air warming. So again, uh, what we wanna do is um, limit the time that between the uh, end of pre-warming and the induction and beginning of anesthesia to less than 10 minutes. So be really careful if you've got the patient in the operating room, possibly positioning them uh, for a long time um, without 
uh, continually warming that. And then again, really consider strongly warming fluids, especially if you're given more than one liter, which is a normal size uh, bag, if you will, of any kind of fluid and consider uh, warming those before you administer to those patients. Again, this uh, preoperative or intraoperative um, temperature redistribution and possible hypothermia occurs really quickly and is very hard to catch up with. So we really want to be preemptive about applying these uh, forced air devices as early as we can into the perioperative um, period. Postoperatively, uh, same thing goes for really all the same reasons. Keep surgical patients warmed until they are comfortable and have core temperature by your measurement, however you're measuring it, within that normal range, and continue to measure that core temperature as well as you can after they've um, left the operating room and are in recovery. And again, you want to make sure that you've caught up, reversed any existing hypothermia, but also kept the patients comfortable as, as well as get them um, to that normal thermal zone if they had decreased during their procedure. And again, um, very important to continually monitor the patients and always be aware of what their temperature is, even before you start seeing them shiver and have their teeth chattering in the recovery area. This kind of complicated um, slide really just illustrates what I mentioned before, which is the many different ways that we do um, uh, employ for our patients. But as you can see, uh, that forced air really is the most effective and um, has the most impact on maintaining that core temperature and therefore preventing that hypothermia. So we call that um, much more active than the sort of passive things that we do. For instance, the uh, warm cotton blankets that I mentioned that we often use um, in, in many situations. But again, they're a little bit of a start, but they just don't provide the long lasting effect of uh, allowing that patient to make maintain their normal thermia as you might with a forced air device being applied to that patient. So let me summarize um, before we turn this over to Dr. Mueller. Um, please uh, consider that, can, that temperature monitoring. It is really, really important for you as clinicians to be aware of the patient's temperature throughout their perioperative uh, period. So um, we are always careful pre-op, intra-op, and post-operatively to make sure that that patient is continually warmed, especially given all of the things that we do to uh, get them, unfortunately, way towards that hypothermic zone. We want to keep them as warm and as safe and as comfortable as possible, especially given uh, the statistics that I mentioned earlier in the pre presentation regarding the sequelae of SSIs. And for all those reasons, we want to make sure that our patients get as good a care and have as good as outcomes as we want them to and as they certainly deserve. So I'm going to turn over the presentation to Dr. Mueller, who's going to talk a little bit more about the neurosurgical aspects of this uh, surgical site infection issue. I thank you so much. Well, thank you, Dr. Shapiro, for that uh, wonderful uh, presentation. And um, I will segue nicely into uh, my discussion on how um, I, I uh, optimize the wound closure and spine surgery with the use of uh, closed incisional uh, negative pressure uh, therapy, which is an emerging uh, treatment strategy uh, for this. And uh, there's an old saying that patients judge the success of the surgery by the uh, appearance of the incision. And so 
I'm going to talk about how um, closed incisional negative pressure therapy, uh, I utilize it and it, it can be utilized to um, optimize the wound. We all know that uh, improvement is fundamental to impacting outcomes and uh, spine surgery is, is no different. And this is a, a study uh, that I did about Ernest Codman and his um, uh, end result um, outcome study where he started morbidity and mortality tracking process with his patients and studied complications and outcomes in an effort to make improvements based on these outcomes. And so the concept of improving is fundamental uh, within, um, within surgery itself and uh, specifically within uh, spine surgery. And overall, it's been about a decade now since uh, Dr. Porter's uh, perspective article in the New England Journal about defining value in healthcare. And there has been this uh, shift to a transition to a value-based care. And when we're talking about value of care, one of the things we talk about is quality and cost. And, and are we doing things um, that are, that are um, not only improving outcomes, but are uh, value-based? And specifically, when uh, recently with spine surgery, this has uh, been a major focus um, in, in healthcare. Uh, spine surgery is a major topic of this, as there are uh, many things, it's very costly. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of spine surgeries done um, for um, many different reasons. And uh, you know, further analysis on how we can improve the care in many aspects, all aspects of spine surgery uh, is, is a current thing that is ongoing and is uh, very valuable to the uh, spine community. Spine surgery is performed for many different causes. Um, you can be infectious causes, um, malignancy from cancer. Uh, this cancer can be from a primary bone tumor or it can be from a tumor arising um, from elsewhere in a metastatic lesion. It can be for trauma, or it can be for uh, the most common, which is degenerative, which is the wear and, wear and tear arthritis uh, that people um, most commonly uh, present with. But the, the spectrum of causes for which someone may require spine surgery is, is very varied. And when we think about our goals of spine surgery, uh, there are really four principal goals that, that people kind of talk about. One of them being if you have an unstable spine, um, like the image on the uh, left, you, you need to stabilize it somehow. Um, <clears throat> another uh, thing we talk about is decompression, where there can be compression of the neural elements. This can be from a variety of causes, such as a herniated disc, a tumor, a hematoma, an abscess. Um, and part of your surgical strategy is to decompress either the spinal cord, nerve roots, some form of the neural elements. Um, the spine does have a normal alignment to it, and some people, um, for various reasons, have an abnormal alignment, and oftentimes that requires uh, a correction. Um, sometimes that correction can be quite severe. And um, lastly, some people present with mass lesions uh, that are uh, unclear what they are. You can speculate uh, with a differential diagnosis based off of MRI, but oftentimes um, surgical removal, one of the goals is to actually provide the patient with a diagnosis. Over the uh, spine surgery has evolved greatly uh, over the last uh, 20 to 50 years. And um, with the adoption and evolution and technology, uh, 
um, surgeons are doing um, surgery with less and less of invasiveness. And this kind of demonstrates the spectrum that we see on the far left, we still see and we still perform uh, surgical procedures that are um, traditional midline uh, open exposure um, for patients. Um, there's then the adoption of more minimally invasive techniques uh, in the middle is tubular based techniques that have been around for the last uh, 20 years. And uh, on the right, most recently, endoscopic techniques have uh, become um, more, um, more interesting as the technology is there and uh, as we look to shift to some of these patients to uh, the outpatient setting versus the inpatient. So uh, there's varying degree of invasiveness of, of surgical procedures. And ultimately, surgical site uh, infections uh, are, are the big thing that we as surgeons um, want to minimize. Um, they impact all shareholders, surgeons, hospitals, patients, everyone is impacted by these. And the attention to optimizing the surgical site um, has historically been lacking, um, but has been increasing re recently, as I've uh, mentioned earlier with um, a more attention to improving the value of care and reducing surgical site infections and all their costs and everything that you heard so far in this webinar are a big deal to many people. When we think about wound complications, we think about things more problematic that are uh, deep in, in infections that are usually below the fascia. Um, these usually typically require surgical debridement, a return to the operating room, long-term and IV antibiotics and an increased length of stay. Superficial or above the fascia, which is the fascial layer, the strength layer, the spine, uh, sometimes these can be managed with antibiotics alone. Uh, but wound complications uh, result in increased patient and family anxiety. No, no family member or loved one wants to see their incision uh, with um, infection and, and pus draining from it as they get very concerned that there, there can be long-term impacts from that. So it's always a source of anxiety. It increases their morbidity and healthcare costs, as I've mentioned, um, with the, them having to return to the OR. And ultimately, it leads to an increase in resource utilization. You now have to find another operating room, hospital bed, and uh, these can be quite a burdensome. When we think about the wound healing timeline, there's two things that we really keep in mind. We've, when we make an incision, uh, we've now disrupted the normal tensile strength of the skin. And so what you can see on the uh, bottom left, the green squares, is basically that an incision no longer has its normal tensile strength. And what we do with our incision, um, depending on the degree of invasiveness, is whenever we close it, we approximate it and we uh, augment it based off of um, things such as sutures, um, staples, and um, now negative pressure therapy dressings. And the hope is that over time, as time goes, the uh, person's innate inflammatory response and wound healing cascade and scar strength will, will form in a strong strength before there's a decline in what we do to the patient, such as the sutures. The sutures dissolve, you remove the staples. And this curve 
is not the same for everyone. Uh, people are going to form scars at different strength. Obviously, if you have risk factors for wound healing, your uh, slope may be more flat and may take a while. And it's really in these high risk patients that we want to look for strategies that will allow us to maintain a incisional strength long enough to allow time for the scar to heal. So these are the strategies that we are, are looking to adopt. And when we think about surgical site infection and spine surgery, one of the big things that we uh, want to decide initially uh, as a surgeon is, is who is at risk for these. These are usually multifactorial uh, issues going on with them. But when we think about uh, risk, we usually like to define things into patient-associated factors and surgery-associated factors. There's a very good article uh, out of the Global Spine Journal uh, by uh, Raina Yao um, that kind of delineates these factors. And the big ones that after reviewing of the literature that they found with patient-associated are in general, diabetes tends to be a strong association with surgical site infection, obesity um, as well. So diabetes tends to reduce the, the, impair the vasculature and the immune response. Obesity can lead to increased tensile forces that pull your incision apart. So longer incisions can, can now be pulled apart. There are surgery associated factors, the degree of invasiveness like I talked about. Um, uh, uh, my group at Georgetown has published on the minimally invasive uh, tubular approach in terms of its reduction in um, surgical site infections um, in degenerative populations, and this has been uh, echoed by others. In terms of the less invasive uh, techniques tend to result in a, a less uh, risk of having an infection. Pre-op radiation, especially in uh, patients with oncology, can also impact uh, the wound healing. Um, Post-op transfusion has also been shown. And then the increased invasiveness index score of a, uh, a surgery also uh, portends a patient at a higher risk. And you can imagine in many patients, there may be a combination. And so our goal as surgeons is to improve the function and quality of, of a patient's uh, life through, uh, through spine surgery and devising a, a surgical plan and optimization strategy has to take into consideration these risk factors in terms of counseling. And so surgical site infection prevention is part of the preoperative uh, planning in terms of talking with uh, patients. So for example, when you see this patient with an MRI uh, here, with uh, multi-level <clears throat> degenerative disease, uh, she, you know, you want to assess what are the risk factors, what are going on. So, are their patient? Are they diabetic? Are they immunosuppressed? Are they obese? Do they have an increased superficial distance greater than three centimeters, like this patient? What are some technical um, factors? Can I treat this pathology using minimally invasive techniques? What sutures should I use to close? What about drains? Where should I put them? How long should I leave? And what should I do with the skin? Surgeon techniques are also uh, factors in terms of obviously maintaining sterile technique, minimizing your operative time, changing gloves, and then post-operatively uh, things that have been shown, mobilizing patients, glucose control. And now the big thing that I would like to, to talk about and um, that I've felt in, you know, historically has not gotten the attention is the surgical dressing.
And so what, what are the current tools and current strategies that we use to help um, reduce the chance of surgical site infections? Well, in terms of surgical dressings, you have a standard occlusive dressing, which is usually like a Telfa or Tegaderm, or you have some glue-based, either Dermabond or Prinio, as is shown here in the middle of your screen. And um, additionally, um, other than the dressings for skin, you'll have a variety of closure techniques. Some people will use a running monocryl, some people will use staples, some people will use sutures, some will use a combination, something to, to close the skin. And then um, a part that's also uh, important and I, and I want to highlight because of, of its use um, is local wound care. You have these agents available to you, betadine, um, silver impregnated dressings like Aquacel, Metahoney, and then um, Bacitracin ointment um, covered with a Xeroform. And you can use these in, in combination. I routinely, uh, after I take uh, for a high-risk patient off of a negative pressure dressing, I will, I will use um, a combination of uh, daily betadine, Bacitracin ointment, and Xeroform daily changed. And the attention to local wound care um, is something that uh, it deserves to be mentioned um, because in a lot of these high-risk individuals, you, you do a lot of work in the operating room and, and for at least 30, 60 days afterwards in that perioperative period, uh, that is the time when their incision is at high, ri highest risk. And you want to have a strategy that incorporates addressing uh, this, um, this problem uh, so that they do not get a um, surgical site infection. So what are current strategies in the prevention of uh, post-operative uh, infections that people have said? Well, this is, a, this is a very good article that again, talked about patients with high risk for post-operative infections. And they list many of the ones that are well-known, diabetes, immunosuppression, smoking, obesity, Mal malnutrition and revisions. These are all known to be very, very challenging and high risk and portend um, a, an increased risk to developing an infection. So what is used in, in the perioperative, intraoperative and postoperative? Well, uh, this chart on the right kind of nicely summarizes these strategies. For routine use in the perioperative period, there's staff screening and chlorhexidine baths. Um, intraoperatively, people uh, getting preoperative antibiotics, skin preparation with some alcohol-based uh, cleanser, and uh, the use of um, intra-wound uh, vancomycin powder. Postoperatively, some sort of dressing with silver impregnated is often used um, as sometimes. And then in select cases, they talk about tight glycemic control, I would, um, you know, I would say that you know, postoperative glycemia should be um, on on everyone. You should you should uh, try that. Um, smoking cessation obviously is something to talk to, to patients about. Wound irrigating with a, a pulse lavage, and then um, in select cases, closed incisional uh, negative pressure wound dressing is something that I would, um, again I'm going to be talking about and sharing my experience with and how you can utilize it in many of these high-risk patients. And so, so what is negative pressure wound therapy? Well, wound vac and negative pressure therapy has been around um, uh, for many years. 
And um, the uh, a what we're talking about is not a wound vac in the sense of uh, how general surgery uses it, but a closed incisional wound vac. So this is basically over a closed incision. And so what what does it deliver? It delivers negative pressure. And so this is a study that talks about what are the impacts um, on negative pressure uh, of negative pressure on the skin. And what it ends up doing is it's, it actually optimizes the conditions for wound healing. And uh, this was a paper that showed that it um, that looked at that on human skin and the microcirculation, and it showed that it significantly increased oxygen saturation, uh, the amount of local hemoglobin, blood flow, um, as well as the blood velocity and uh, the smaller vasculature. And so what this does is this, this helps to optimize a environment to give you the best chance for this patient to heal um, versus just a sterile dressing, which acts as a passive dressing. So this negative pressure dressing is an active dressing for you. So once you put it on, until you put it off, everything that's going on during that patient's stay, it's, it's still getting an active dressing 24 hours a day. And so the use of incisional vacs um, has been utilized in orthopedics and cardiothoracic and general surgery. And so recently in spine surgery, it's starting to uh, gain attention again, uh, owing to the fact that we are, you know, we continue to look at strategies um, to reduce the surgical site infection. And this is a great article uh, out of uh, uh, JNS Spine on um, just a proof of concept study on the use of an incisional vacuum um, to reduce infections. There was a small number of patients, 64 patients, heterogeneous cohort, um, only 21 in the, in the VAC group, uh, but the surgical site infection rate was 21% um, uh, versus 10% uh, in, in the um, 21% in the control versus 10% in the VAC. So um, not a statistically significant, but uh, owing to the small number. But again, is there something to uh, close incisional negative pressure dressing in some of these patients to, to, to um, uh, reduce their chances of infection? Um, this is a, um, uh, a study out of the Spine Journal that looked at negative pressure dressing in long segment thoracolumbar spinal fusion. So again, you know, the, when can we use, when should we use this type of uh, dressing to optimize uh, wound closure? And obviously the high risk patients, so long segment fusions do have a high risk. And this was 160 patients, only 46 of which though had a, a wound vac deformity patients and uh, there's 50% decrease in the incidence of wound dehiscence and about a 30% reduction in surgical site infection. So again, um, a, a showing a benefit of utilizing this strategy to help reduce your chances of uh, getting a surgical site infection. And um, this is a, another a study out of the World Neurosurgery uh, by Naylor uh, talking about the effects of negative pressure on wound dehiscence, and again, uh, mirroring the same thing, negative pressure wound therapy decreased the rates in the lumbar fusion through, um, through the anterior approaches, so things like ALIF, uh, of which many, uh, as, as many viewers will know, ALIFs do have a significant infection risk, and so um, that is something that I uh, tend to use um, in, in my patients as well. 
negative pressure in this paper also reduced the dehiscence and surgical site infection in posterior operations uh, with specific attention towards neoplastic infections, long segment fusions, revisions, which are um, uh, high risk of uh, developing an infection. So where does my clinical experience come from? Well, uh, I've been using it now for a little over three years. And um, this started back when I was a resident and I took care of this gentleman here that's pictured in the, uh, in the, in the top screen. And he had a, um, an ACDF out of a outside hospital that had gotten infected and he had treated with antibiotics and he developed a worsening infection that went to his bone um, that required a surgery from the front and from the back. And as you, as a result of this, he had difficulty mobilizing. He had um, a, a high risk. You can see there's surgical opponents in the hospital all the time with this trait collar. Um, he unfortunately had developed an epidural abscess and uh, with resulting profound neurological deficit. So he had immobility and was in the ICU and we were watching him daily. And on day 29, um, he turned, the nurses turned him and they heard a pop and his incision fillet open, just like you see there. So this is really what started me on thinking, what, what am I currently doing and what can I do better to improve um, the closure in many of these uh, high risk individuals? And so um, I, I was looking at other strategies of what other people were doing. And a lot of this is with collaboration. Pictured in the bottom right is uh, me working with the plastic surgery team at Georgetown. And uh, they taught me many things about um, how they uh, tend to close incisions and, and its use in other areas, negative pressure therapy. And so I began to explore, I was like, well, I wonder what the role would be in spine surgery. And so I uh, uh, began to um, collect data and do pilot studies and um, look at it. And overall, uh, I'll show my paper later, but it was recently published. But it, overall, uh, what, what we noticed was there was a reduction in surgical site infection rates in particular populations, in patients with instrumented fusions, in high-risk patients, patients with deformity, malignancy, People are diabetic, immunosuppressed, obesity. And as I said, this is because uh, one of the things is this is an active surgical dressing <clears throat> during the immediate post-op period. Many surgeons uh, remove dressings at various stages, day one, day two. Um, the negative pressure therapy, um, <clears throat> Provena dressing is the one that I utilize is used for uh, seven days. Um, and that's, you know, continuous active draining for you while you're working on pain control, mobilization, watching the drains, while you're doing all this during their hospitalization, you have something that's working for you. Additionally, it forms a barrier for patients that potentially require a trait collar or, or cannot be mobilized. And I also noticed that the impact healthcare quality metrics and patients quality of life just anecdotally seem to be uh, better, which makes sense. Um, no one likes a pussed out infection. There was an initial learning curve. Um, <clears throat> these are some of the pictures uh, from my initial experience where um, uh, before I learned about Provena, I had the black uh, foam that I would use and I would just kind of cut um, and form to it. Uh, the plastic surgeons talked about bridging because it was uh, more tolerable by the patients. 
what um, and so that's what I started doing. I started customizing these drain uh, dressings, cutting them. And uh, what I noticed is many of these patients on day three or four, the seal would fail. And uh, that was often because they would get sweaty and the, the draping, which you can actually see over that, um, uh, you can see right here, which is the drape that ends up going over the vac dressing, um, would get frayed and the, and the vac would lose seal. And so um, I started augmenting my uh, dressing with a uh, foam tape closure. So I would obtain a seal in the OR and then I would do a foam tape around the border. And that, uh, that, that closed, that uh, helped everything um, for, the, for the entire seven days. I also uh, learned about tunneling drains uh, far enough away from your incision so that you can remove a drain while not disrupting the, the seal. And what, what I noticed, and um, the impact is, is going back to this wound healing timeline, is what the closed incisional negative pressure dressing does is it gives you a little time. It's that dotted line. It, it maintains the incision and helps optimize that healing to give time uh, for some of these high-risk patients to develop a, a strong enough uh, surgical scar. And so uh, my pilot study was with um, these. And then ultimately, uh, I learned about the uh, Provena surgical dressing from the plastic surgery colleagues. And so I then, uh, after enough pilot study, I decided to generate and devise a prospective observational study. This was recently published in uh, neurosurgery and um, is currently the largest study and most compre study, comprehensive study to date in spine surgery. And I, I looked at, um, uh, again, the effect of incisional negative pressure therapy versus a standard wound dressing on surgical site infections after spine surgery. And this was a foundational paper, right? This is a, um, um, it was a heterogeneous population, predominantly degenerative, but overall there was a statistically significant reduction in surgical site infection rates with the use of closed incisional negative pressure dressing. And so uh, this kind of fell in line with what our colleagues and other specialties were noticing uh, in orthopedics and cardiothoracic and, and what they were seeing as well. There was no difference though with decompression alone procedures. So if you're doing a laminectomy, a discectomy, something very small um, that required only decompression alone, there, was, there seemed to be no benefit. Um, however, there was a reduction in surgical site infection in cases requiring instrumentation. And so what, what uh, I concluded from this is that um, in, in these patients that the higher cost of a closed incisional negative pressure therapy dressing might be justified in certain cases with instrumented cases as well as certain high-risk patient populations undergoing spine surgery given the seriousness uh, consequences of an infection. Um, we also had um, a uh, heterogeneous uh, population that was predominantly degenerative, but there was a significant oncology and infection in which we did notice a reduction in infection rates as, was, as has been seen, uh, though it did not reach statistical significance. And there are currently, we have ongoing studies that are looking at specifically oncology populations, um, patients with a high surgical site invasiveness index greater than 21. So what we're looking to do is 
um, further delineate um, in which patient populations and when is closed incisional negative pressure addressing most impactful. And so what, what you can kind of see from this and, and what I can hope you can gather is spine surgery is very varied. There's a lot of variation. For, and so what we want to do for many of these things is try to standardize. And because with the standardization, you can then uh, work on improving things. And so my high-risk complex wound closure um, take, took on shape after learning this. I will say this at the beginning that um, I have anecdotally used a negative pressure, closed incisional negative pressure therapy on um, and patients that have had durotomies that have been primarily repaired. But in my study, I, uh, contraindication was a durotomy. I wanted to remove that because of, um, it is not clear the impact of closed incisional negative pressure dressing on depth at this time. Uh, none of those patients had issues, but the, the end was very low. So currently I, I do not use it in, in uh, patients with gerotomy, but this was kind of a, the closure um, that kind of took shape. You know, you would have some sort of fascial release potentially to bring the muscles together. You would have a subfascial drain. Um, I, yeah, I have medium hemovac here, which is what I used in the study. I've actually since switched over. I tend to use 15 uh, Blake's and both the subfascial and superfascial. Um, and uh, in terms of drain management, typically I remove the subfascial one first and uh, usually around less than 50 in 24 hours or less than 30 in um, an eight hour period. And then the superfascial is less than 30 in a day or so after postoperative day two. Um, uh, Usually we'll continue antibiotics uh, while drains are in place given their high risk. Although um, uh, recently with this upcoming study, we are uh, not gonna do that to see if it makes an impact. Uh, there is some literature that um, is coming out from uh, our group at Georgetown relating uh, antibiotics uh, while drains are in place. Um, and then as I tunnel five centimeters from the incision site, if you tunnel further than this, this will allow you optimal placement of your drains to remove them while also um, while maintaining a seal. For sutures, I use PDS over Vicryl. Um, PDS sutures have a higher tensile strength. They last longer. Um, and Stratafix, which uh, many people have seen, is also a PDS-based suture. Uh, for skin, um, I, for, for the study, uh, you know, in, and in general, I will sometimes use a, a 2.0 proline vertical mattress with intervening staples and take them out in sequential fashion. Um, uh, and so, but you can potentially also do this with just staples. Um, the, the key thing is that once you finish with the surgery and the negative pressure dressing, then you enter in uh, postoperatively seeing these patients in the clinic or having a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant, some sort of uh, setup for your high risk patients to see them closely. I maintain uh, the negative pressure therapy dressing for seven days because that's, I use Provena. And then some accessories. Above the superfascial space, I use uh, Betadine. Um, there's uh, some, a little literature to suggest that re uh, reduces it. I do uh, irrigation. Um, with a pulse lavage, and uh, I will use uh, vancomycin powder. For uh, oncology cases, I will mix the vancomycin powder, vanc powder in with the, uh, the bone graft. 
So some closed institutional uh, negative dressing pearls. Uh, the big thing in spine surgery is maintenance of the seal. And uh, I think if you utilize the foam tape border and tunneling the drain distance greater than five centimeters, you'll be able to um, maintain that seal. For posterior cervical uh, cases, uh, many times you're, you're, you're fighting the neck folds. What I do with that is I take a drape and I make a border around the actual incision uh, to seal off the, um, the neck fold uh, from the, and to create a separate space. I then apply the uh, negative pressure dressing, uh, which is the Privena in this case, which you can see over that. And this is a strategy that you can use to help you um, navigate the neck folds. Um, and because uh, I, I agree, they, they can be very challenging. Bridging, I found, is not necessary. Um, as again, the plastic surgeons talk about that being uh, kind of, you know, from a comfort standpoint, but many of these patients have undergone large operations and they're in, um, you know, significant pain control. So it's usually anecdotally is not bothersome to them. We actually, as part of, uh, an upcoming, as an ongoing IRB, we have, um, a, uh, survey that actually asks patients about this. So we'll, we'll have more information for you. And the other thing is you don't want to overstretch the tape. Um, when you take the tape and you put it over the foam dressing, you just want to lay it over and, and place down on uh, the sides, which are sticky, which you can see here. If you stretch the tape and apply it to the skin, then when you turn on the negative pressure dressing, it's going to pull the skin, and this can lead to remote blister formation. Um, I, I, and I have seen this. I've done this um, in patients. And... Um, there's usually no long-term sequela. It's just, it's very frustrating for you and for the patients when they look and they see a blister. Um, but that is uh, something to avoid, literally just laying it on there and um, maintaining your seal and getting your seal. After you get your seal, line the foam tape with border and you should be, um, you should be good to go. Um, closed incisional negative pressure dressing is valuable. For, it's a value, valuable adjunct for incisional management. It stabilizes the closure and prevents shear and motion around the incision. It's not for every spine incision. I love this picture here because uh, it's to the point. This was a, a very, very sick individual in which um, he had tandem stenosis and he uh, I under, uh, did a uh, posterior cervical uh, fusion on him and a minimally invasive lumbar fusion. And you can see the two different dressings but in the lumbar spine, I utilized minimally invasive techniques that were less invasive. And so I didn't really feel like he needed um, his dressing to enhance his risk of a wound in, uh, infection to reduce it. However, with the uh, cervical, um, I felt like he was high risk. And so um, this is a, an example of how you can utilize these dressings. You don't, they're not necessarily for every incision. It is an active surgical dressing. It's uh, closed incisional negative pressure dressing should target the high risk individuals, the high risk incisions. It should be incorporated into standardized pathways for these because these are the patients that um, are, are highest at risk uh, to, to have an infection. We're talking about multi-level instrument infusions that with long constructs, diabetes, poor nutritional status, people with malignancy, a reduced ability to mobilize. So you're talking about thoracic and lumbar regions. Um, all this should uh, clue you in on 
you know, you may want to consider using this uh, therapy. Um, it's a minimal change to normal dressing routine. Um, it is going to be a little bit longer at first as you get accustomed to putting it on, but after you get uh, more facile with it, the amount of time that it adds to your OR is minimal compared to the impact you're having on the patient's uh, quality of life and uh, the healthcare system. And with that, I'd like to kind of share a couple of cases with you on how I utilize this. This was a 45-year-old male who presented with progressive debilitating mid-back pain, subjective leg weakness, and difficulty walking that had worsened over the last several months, but had been severe over the last two weeks. His past medical history was significant for hepatitis C, psoriasis. He was malnourished, his albumin level 2.3. He was diabetic. His past surgical history was he had multi-level thoracic osteomyelitis with an epidural abscess that had been treated with a uh, decompressive laminectomy uh, six months prior um, followed by long-term antibiotics. He presented to the ER and we got this scan um, that had showed that he had developed a kyphotic deformity versus before he was in line. Um, and um, luckily because of his laminectomy, he didn't have frank spinal cord injury, but he could see he has now severe uh, kyphotic deformity. So how can I optimize this patient's wound healing? Well, from a surgical standpoint, I had to uh, correct his alignment, stabilize him and decompress him. So I did this long segment um, instrumented fusion. And now I'm stuck, now I, now I have this construct and I have uh, this guy's risk factors. And so how, how best to optimize it? Well, intra-op, uh, I, I utilized that, that high risk pathway that I uh, told you about. Um, and these are pictures from the skin and the dressing closure. You can see I used uh, sutures. These are 2-0 proline vertical mattress with interrupted staples. Um, I then applied the incisional negative pressure dressing and then uh, removed these um, uh, two weeks uh, um, for the uh, staples, three for the sutures. Um, and then this is a six weeks post-op period in which you can see he's, he's nicely healed and um, he, he has continued to remain uh, healed. Um, a second case presentation is the one that I showed you at the very beginning. This is a 56-year-old female with back pain, neurogenic claudication, who presented to the ER with just worsening uh, pain and immobility. She's diabetic. She's obese. She has rheumatoid arthritis. She has limited mobility. She has heart failure, and she's had a prior 5-1 discectomy in the past. And so from a surgical standpoint, um, this a patient required um, a multiple um, staged operation. So I, uh, and I, I really like this uh, case because it shows the actual impact of a negative pressure on a sane patient. So I, um, I, I first did a two level uh, L45 to S1 uh, anterior lumbar interbody fusion. So these two spacers right here. And then in a staged fashion on the following day, I did an L34 lateral um, lumbar inner body fit and fit, um, fusion through a lateral incision uh, minimally invasively. And then I uh, flipped and did an open midline L3 to pelvis with uh, complete uh, decompression vasectectomies. Um, and this is a picture of her posterior incision uh, after I finished where you had the uh, dressing and you had the... Um, the, the dressing change. Um, 
postoperatively, uh, her pain, um, uh, other than postoperative pain, was, was improved. And so um, these are pictures from the uh, seven days after the incision, where you can see the negative pressure dressing, and then six, uh, six weeks after the incision. She was significantly high risk. So in her, um, I left these sutures and staples um, for lo uh, longer. So this is an option you have if you close with sutures or staples. And the benefit of seeing these patients, I saw this patient every two weeks in the clinic to evaluate the incision. Um, you can, you can, um, you need to have close follow-up with them because especially in obese patients that are, the tensile forces are pulling the incision apart. You want to maintain that. But the reason, and this is now 10 weeks after uh, closed incisional negative pressure dressing, everything's been removed and you can see she has a nice uh, healed incision. But the real reason I like to show this case is because this is her A-lift incision on the left, seven days after or seven days uh, later. So you can see um, this was just closed with staples and it had a standard dressing that was removed on day two with nothing else. She has a lot of the same risk factors, um, except she's not actually laying on the incision like she is on the back. So um, this is showing you this very well would have happened in the back, um, um, almost guaranteed. Uh, but uh, I, I felt that the, the, close, the negative pressure dressing helped um, as, you know, heal the incision faster and provided me uh, something that was not apparent in, in the uh, uh, first incision. Um, what's funny about this picture is this is the, the vac tunneling to the back, but you can see this is a great, uh, great demonstration of that. So future research in uh, the use of closed incisional negative pressure dressing should look at the cost effectiveness. It should look at uh, spinal oncology. It should look at high surgical site invasiveness index, all of which we actually have uh, an ongoing studies for all of these. And so please look forward to a future publication on this because these are patient populations and these are things where this uh, adjunct can help you the most. There is also need to be further study on the impact on cases with durotomy. Um, and my, usually we should start from the basic science and uh, more lab-based studies where we divide and look at the impact of negative pressure on depth. And then we can then expand that. But as of right now, I do not currently use it uh, with durotomy because I don't want that negative pressure to reopen uh, a closure if you've done that. Um, and again, at the end of the day, as surgeons, as spine surgeons, you just spent a lot of effort um, taking care of this patient, doing um, a very th thorough decompression, instrumentation, uh, deformity correction, tumor resection, whatever it is, you just did a great job with it. You don't want to complete that and then just leave for the closure or the dressing and fumble at the one yard line. Instead, you want to think just like you think about your surgical construct, you wanna think about the incision, the dressing, you wanna think about all these ways that I can improve the care, the quality that you deliver um, to help reduce this patient's uh, chance. Because again, um, this is a win for all shareholders. So in conclusion, closed incisional negative pressure therapy is a powerful adjunct to optimize high-risk surgical incisions it's an active surgical dressing. It's adaptable to surgeon's current workflow. It's reduction in surgical site infection and readmissions reduce healthcare costs.
increasing the value. Um, it's selective use does justify that upfront cost. Thank you very much.